we have eight years, 86 months, um, between now and 2030, uh, to get emissions down, because that's the key decade, uh, in terms of holding the world as close as possible to 1.5 degrees. Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen on the ABC's 7.30 report. Mr Bowen, if atmospheric CO2 concentration was fixed, if it stopped rising, would that be the end of floods, droughts, storms and sea level rise? After all, the fundamental premise of the transition is to lower CO2 emissions and therefore control the weather. But I see increasing commentary on the difficulties of the transition and little on what failure looks like. This episode, we'll see a clip from an interview with Ben Barr, CEO of the Australian Electricity Market Commission, where he says it's very difficult. Another example is Mark Ludlow's piece in the Australian Financial Review titled, White Knuckle Ride to Net Zero, and Travis and Baker in the Australian, We Won't Be Ready. So what does failure look like? Perhaps a, an easier question to answer is, what does success look like? Is success using taxpayer funds to keep unprofitable coal mines online? Let's look at the model currently in play in Victoria with your lawn. Uh, what's the prospects that Liddell will close as planned or Raring? And what about the unprofitable coal-fired power stations in Queensland that have not been returning a dividend to the government? Is success using taxpayer funds to stockpile gas? Well, let's look at AMO recently who purchased gas presumably using taxpayer funds to stockpile and presumably to sell it back at less than they bought it for. Is that success? Is implementing post-contract domestic gas reserves a success? This is flagged by the federal government. This has been going on for a while. I think the Labor government might just do it. Is success the maniacal pursuit of taxpayer-funded renewable energy power purchase agreements? Let's look at Victoria with its reverse auctions. Let's look at Queensland with, on last count, 15 of the wind and solar projects in Queensland have government power purchase agreements. Who knows how long they are for or what the prices are. Is success resuming land to build a fantastic hydro scheme? The example is Queensland Hydro and their Pioneer Valley Dam. Is success massive cost blowouts on public funded projects? For examples, let's look at Energy Connect, transmission line between South Australia and New South Wales. A year overdue, a couple of billion over budget. Speaking of over budget and overdue, Snowy 2's in the same bag. What's that? A couple of years, a couple of billion, multiples of billions. Is it success to require special market rules to advantage renewable energy. For an example of that is, is Matt Keane's long-term energy service agreement coming into effect in New South Wales, which is effectively a floor price for wind and solar. So they can avoid the pitfalls of negative wholesale prices. Negative wholesale prices actually caused by wind and solar. Clearly success is in the eye of the beholder with this transition. For the consumers, not so much. Now, warnings have emerged that retail energy prices could rise by 35% next year. That's a devastating prediction that would hit families and businesses incredibly hard. How would your government cope with that? We're building 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines. We see massive public spending unrolling under the government's $20 billion rewiring the nation plan, with another $6 billion in taxpayer funding to force new transmission into Victoria via the Marinus Link, which is a new undersea cable to Tasmania. Included in this budget, VNI West, a new transmission line between New South Wales and Victoria. All this supposedly to reduce emissions to save the world, with cost a side issue. Ben Barr, the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Commission, the bureaucracy that sets the rules in the energy marketplace, believes that no crisis should go to waste and the energy crisis here in Australia, uh, which was mostly triggered off in June 2022 with the suspension of the market, he believes that is a signal that the rush to net zero should accelerate. Here he is interviewed on the Aurora podcast. Uh, that crisis, which I think shocked us all in the sector, does 
offer you that chance for speeding up reform. And so we had an energy ministers meeting on the 12th of August and it was, it was a great meeting. And if you, if you really want to, you can have a look at the communique and it's a really significant communique. And I think the three key things uh, out of that, which bode well for long-term reform are absolutely the need to speed up the transition to net zero in Australia. You, you saw ministers. One of the more dangerous, in my opinion, changes to the fundamentals of the electricity regulation in Australia is the change to the national electricity objective. Now, this is, uh, I guess you'd call it a pillar uh, of, or a guiding, a guiding light as to how these uh, bureaucracies are meant to operate and set their rules and, and their guidelines. But the energy ministers, in their wisdom, are making eliminating emissions a pillar of the system by including that in the national electricity objective. Now, my... My question to these guys, and you know Ben Barr, if you're listening, why not elimination of slavery? Why not elimination of inequality? Why not elimination of habitat destruction and land degradation? And so what this will do will be able to make us make it more explicit. Uh, and I think uh, not just us, but also uh, we're one of three market bodies uh, in Australia. We've got the Australian Energy Regulator uh, and uh, EMO, who's the operator. And I think it'll allow us all to have a consistent view of how we should interpret uh, those objectives. And so, you know, we've already, uh, for some of our rule changes, we're doing a rule change on hydrogen, hydrogen into the gas networks. And one of our criteria were actually it's got to help uh, decarbonisation. Does anyone get the picture that these energy bureaucracies are placing the transition and emissions reduction ahead of their other main priorities, which are cost and reliability? But we've got such an incredible challenge uh, in Australia and globally about the scale of investment we need to get to net zero by 2050. Wind and solar only have one way to reduce consumer costs, and that is the effect on the dispatch price. But there are many ways wind and solar increase costs. Transmission, backup, storage, stability, short lifespan. All these things add costs the entire time, not just the time that these things are generating when the weather is favourable. So I'm forced to ask, at what point does risk of mistakes made for the sake of the transition outweigh any risks that may or may not occur from climate change in 100 years' time? Another way of phrasing this question, when is the cure worse than the disease? How about when freezing and starving a pensioner is seen as necessary to save the planet? Well, that's one example. There are plenty of others. This is the means-to-an-end strategy, and it sucks. It's not moral to sacrifice people, livelihoods and living standards to claim righteousness in the climate debate. But that's the inevitable future politicians are choosing for us. Bowen, Palaszczuk, Andrews, Keane, I'm speaking to you right now. Do any of you listen to the first salesman that knocks on your door offering a deal too good to be true? Of course not. How about you all go and talk to Happer, Coonan, Curry, Lindsay, Spencer, McKittrick, Epstein, Schellenberger, Lomborg, Plymer and Curry. Get a second opinion, join the dots, check some facts. Read John Constable's recent piece in Quillette where he explains the faltering of energy consumption in the West and how dangerous this is to human prosperity. Human prosperity is also the central theme of Alec Epstein's book, Fossil Future. Read it, if only to satisfy your curiosity. Read Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never or Vaclav Smil. Listen to podcasts from Robert Bryce or Chris Kiefer. Don't just accept the word of Holmes Accord, Cannon Brooks, Ross Garno, Tony Wood, Malcolm Turnbull, Twiggy Forrest, Alan Finkel, or any of the so-called experts in charge of the energy bureaucracies, you know, Schott, Westerman, Collier and Barr. Your job as a politician is not to impose arbitrary goals and targets to appease UN deities. Your job is to get the best possible outcomes for the people in your country, your state and your electorate. How are those outcomes defined? 
Well, let's do the basics. Safety, freedom and democracy. Safety is manifested in the security of food, clean water and clean air. Freedom and democracy are manifested in sensible regulation, stable, predictable services, small changes over time. This is all underpinned by energy security. Weighing up the cost versus the benefit, the risks. These are all the tools that professionals use in their daily lives, not this made up gobbledygook bullshit that's undermining our energy security. Destroy energy security and destroy safety, freedom and democracy. Look what's happening in Europe right now. Is this appealing? Running up national debt to astronomical levels, borrowing from our future. This is not what you are paid to do. For your information, Bowen, Keane, Palaszczuk and Andrews, not everybody thinks like you. Renewables, they just can't power a high energy society. You can see here that energy remains tightly coupled to GDP. So there is no poor high energy country, just as there is no rich low energy country. To hear more of Michael Schellenberger's address to the CPAC conference a couple of weeks ago, head over to ADH TV. I highly recommend it. The fact that you need government policy to encourage renewable energy. Every now and then they do say something true. Chris Bowen again on that same 7.30 report interview with Sarah Ferguson. One politician that's pretty right on through this energy crisis and with his commentary and critique of net zero policies is Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland. Here he is interviewed by Ben Fordham on 2GB. Well, I suppose the, the, the question here for us, Ben, are we going to uh, make these changes voluntarily or are they going to be forced upon us? And that's what's happening in Germany right now. They've completely stuffed their energy system. They're losing their industry, their manufacturing sector, like it's going out of fashion. And, uh, and, and now they've been forced to make these decisions. And obviously the German Greens Party didn't want to open up coal-fired power stations or keep their nuclear power stations going. But they've got no other choices right now. And it's not good in life to be put in a situation where we have no other choices. That's why we should at least start considering nuclear power now, uh, because I fear if we don't, we will be. We will be leaving to the next generation of Australians very, very difficult choices without a lot of alternatives. We're the only settled continent in the world now without nuclear, a nuclear energy reactor. It's us and the penguins in Antarctica <laughs> that don't have nuclear energy. Now, we are way out of step. As you said about Germany, they're, they're, they're continuing their nuclear power stations. Sweden announced the other day they're going to start rebuilding new, coal, a new, sorry, new nuclear power stations. France, England, Japan, China, India, all US as well, and Canada as well, all doing the same. We are totally out of step here. Anthony Albanese is stuck in the in in a in a, in a protest march in the 1970s, uh, rather than dealing with the energy crisis and the cost of living issues that Australians face today. So, who is making these decisions? We've seen what Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen thinks. What about Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk and her plans to spend 62 billion dollars of public money to close low-cost coal-fired power stations? These power stations will become clean energy hubs. We're going to build a huge supergrid which goes basically along the east coast of Queensland. We're going to build two pumped hydros. Uh, the Pioneer Valley one in west of Mackay will be the largest in the world. And that will then mean that we'll have a huge attraction of investment in solar and wind. Uh, we anticipate, we already have $11 billion on the books. We anticipate even further in billions of dollars okay. investment when it comes to solar, wind, hydrogen and battery storage. Queensland Premier there on Channel 7's Sunrise Morning Show. So what's included in this supergrid plan? Well, opening the documentation from the website, 
we come to a page called Renewable Investments. Independent modelling indicates Queensland will require approximately 25,000 megawatts of total large-scale renewable generation capacity by 2035, in addition to a further 7,000 megawatts of rooftop solar. This consists of 12,200 megawatts of new wind generation capacity and 10,000 megawatts of new large-scale solar capacity on top of nearly 3,000 megawatts of existing operational wind and solar capacity. Now, some of the other fine print that goes along with this is the land consumption. So on, under the wind section, they're talking about 540,000 hectares. And under the solar, they're talking about 40,000 hectares. So we're, we're nudging up to 600,000 hectares of land. Now, no one's confirmed whether we're going to be clearing new land or resuming existing agricultural land, buying it, renting it, leasing it. Who knows? This all seems to be up in the air. One thing that is certain under these plans is that land consumption is going to be quite large and this is going to butt up against the environmental constraints that many other projects also have to deal with. The Federal Environmental Minister, Tanya Plibersek, recently committed to having 30% of Australia's land area protected by 2030. How does this amount of land clearing fit in with those plans? The facts are that these climate change policies are about political change because these policies are terrible for human prosperity. If the natural environment is the priority here, you do not clear 600,000 hectares of land just to close down some low-cost power stations. You investigate new sources of power which have much greater energy density, and that obviously includes nuclear power. Vivek Ramaswamy on Fox. But here to call the bluff, actually, is, is the op far-left opposition to nuclear energy. So right. that, yes. that reveals yeah. what's going on here, yeah. though, is that actually nuclear energy may be too effective at solving the alleged clean energy crisis, and then you see what's actually uh, happening. Yeah. Is This That's is a Trojan crazy. horse yeah. for advancing agendas of global yeah. equity that have nothing to do well, with uh, climate change uh, or the planet. That's what's going on here. One of the pillars of the energy transition, when you read through the fine print and all the, the modelling and the documentation that comes out from all the, the bureaucracies and the, and the vested interests and the lobbyists, all of, the, all of them, when you read the details on all this modelling and these plans, you find that demand reduction is one of the key pillars to make this a success. Now, we've, we talked about success and failure earlier. Is using less energy a hallmark of success? I don't think so. Michael Schellenberger again at CPAC. If you want to save the natural environment, you want to leave nature there. You want to leave nature in the ground. That's the, and that's the goal both for resources but also for land use. So the picture here is of moving from matter-dense fuels towards energy-dense ones. Another way to think of this is as moving from carbon-intensive fuels to hydrogen-intensive ones. Ultimately, where we want to be is using uranium as our main fuel source. A single Coke can of uranium can provide me with all of the energy I need for my high-energy life. That's not, uh, that's, not only is that not a harm to the environment, it's a net benefit to the environment because I'm going to be using other, less of other fuels and less of other materials that can then stay in nature. And that's a fact-based logical conclusion. Clearly at odds with what our energy ministers are coming up with. Schellenberger continues. And you can see the problem with renewables is that renewables are proposing to move us in the opposite direction, towards a higher material intensity 
than we have under fossil fuels and nuclear. Same thing for electric cars. This was a report put out by the IEA after being badgered for years to tell the truth about renewables. They finally came out with this report and tried not to publicize it, but the graphs in it are stunning. You can see there at the bottom, natural gas and coal require a small fraction of the material throughput, the mining throughput that offshore wind and solar and electric, that electric cars provide. There's an interesting contradiction between these climate change policies, which are terrible for human prosperity, where they claim to be able to uh, look ahead and save us from ourselves in 100 years. Now, a lot of this policy infested the Australian federal government during the Gillard years, she of the carbon tax era. Don't worry, the carbon tax is now back in the form of the safeguard mechanism. Mr. Bowen has promised to use that to his fullest ability. The people who create these policies are not above a bit of fear-mongering. Here's Ross Garno reminiscing on his time in the Gillard area, convincing these politicians, striking them with the cudgel of the fear of extinction to implement these policies. Here he is on the Taxpayer-Funded Arena podcast. I remember my second climate change review, which was for the multi-party committee on climate change, chaired by Prime Minister Julia Gillard. In one of the earlier meetings, I, I was talking about the discount rate and how important it was to have a clear view of uh, how you valued the future relative to the present, and eyes were glazing over. The Prime Minister in the chair, uh, the, the Treasurer was there, the Minister for Climate Change, Greg Combeh, uh, uh, representing the Greens, there was uh, Christine Milne and Adam Bant and uh, a couple of independents from the Parliament, uh, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakshot. And uh, uh, and then I said, if you uh, uh, if you use a discount rate of around uh, 7%, which is the sort of discount rate that uh, equity markets uh, tend to apply, uh, then you would not do anything about climate change, uh, even if you knew uh, with a high degree of certainty that... Uh, uh, not dealing with it would lead to the extinction of our species in a hundred years' time. And uh, the Prime Minister grinned and said, well, you've got us there now, Ross. We're all against the extinction of our species. Ross Garner there with a, a roll call of dead weights and climate alarmists who are a millstone around the neck of electricity consumers in Australia. Garner continued by claiming the moral high ground on emissions reduction, but in my opinion, it's immoral to starve and freeze pensioners on a quest to appease a United Nations climate change deity. You don't know who will be damaged by the extra tonne of carbon dioxide you put in the air, uh, where they are or, uh, or when it will happen, but you are damaging other people and, uh, and so there's a moral responsibility to avoid uh, uh, doing it. I was scratching around for a rebuttal to Ross Gano's comments and this came to mind. If we reduce the world's carbon emissions by 1.3%, what impact would that have on the changing climate of the world? Virtually nothing. And that, of course, is the infamous response by our chief scientist at the time, Alan Finkel, to Senator Macdonald's question about the effects of reducing emissions by Australia's total, 1.3%. The effect is virtually nothing. Of course, logic, logic says that must be true. I suppose my biggest surprise is that um, how... Uh, the contemporary Australian uh, political system can downgrade knowledge, uh, uh, can allow a vested interest to dominate discussion of an important policy issue to the extent that it has. Garno complains about vested interests, and no doubt he means a fossil fuel lobby. And of course, they, are, they have lobby groups. 
and they do make an impact. But I'd argue that nothing's made the impact that the renewables and climate lobby has in the last 20 to 30 years. Garno himself is a good example. He's been a vested interest in the renewables industry for quite some time. But vested interests are only one part of the equation. Who else is trying to push us over the cliff into energy poverty? Rita Panahi asked Alex Epstein. We saw what happens when those policies are enforced, like in Sri Lanka. The, the uprising was uh, enormous. Uh, we've seen the mass protests in the Netherlands, and now Spanish farmers are also protesting against rising energy and fertiliser costs. But who is driving this agenda? I mean, it's, we talk about the climate activists, but really, who are the, who are the powerful forces who are driving this uh, agenda? Well, you can think of it as, you know, the leading, I call it in fossil future, our knowledge system, you know, so the leading institutions and people we rely on for expert knowledge and guidance. And I argue they've totally failed and really they're operating on anti-human ideas. So it's kind of like a doctor who's on the side of the germs giving you advice on how to deal yeah. with the virus. That's really what they're doing, right? Because we're we want to know how do we have low cost, reliable energy? And you notice that that guy who was using the, the Tanya Harding attack on fossil fuels, notice he also mm -hmm. said, oh, we need to use efficiency, which just means less electricity. So his solution is for human beings to have less power. And that's really what this movement is about. And unfortunately, this anti-human idea that human impact is evil and should be eliminated has permeated so many of our leading institutions. So there are many like corrupt people like Klaus Schwab and this kind of these kinds of goons and Guterres, who runs the UN, who's a total thug. I mean, there are all these evil people, but it's really the anti-human ideas that we've accepted that empower these people. And so what we really need is pro-human thinking about energy, where we regard human impact on nature as a good thing when it advances human flourishing, which is most of the time. Alex Epstein there, using logic and facts to make sense of the world. More power to him. We'll finish with a montage of Chris Bowen's thoughts from his 7.30 interview. We need much more renewable energy. Yes, that's a challenge. We need to build a lot of wind. We need to build a lot of solar. Uh, we need to build offshore wind, which this government is proceeding at a, a very rapid pace to do in conjunction with the private sector and with the states. Getting more renewables is the best way, in fact, the only way, uh, to provide any possibility of getting downward pressure on energy prices. Renewable energy is, by, by many lengths of the straight, the cheapest form of energy. The fact that the more renewables you have in the system, the lower energy prices will be. They are the cheapest form of energy. Energy prices are lower than they otherwise would be. Reduce power prices to get emissions down. Actually, the same levers achieve both things. This projected jump in retail energy prices would be on top of an increase already this year. I think prices are up by $300 since April. They, they are shocking numbers. Um, we just said, uh, an increase of $300 this year. The question is how you can still deliver the drop in prices that you promised at the election. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.